This is realestateinvestingmastery.com. All right, guys, this is Joe, and you wouldn't believe what just happened. Alex and I recorded a whole hour-long interview with Jamel, and we lost it. We lost our interview with Jamel. <laughs> Could not believe it. It was so good. I got a whole page full of notes here. and um, But I am back with Jamel, and he's been very gracious enough to have a round two or to do it again. And uh, Alex could not make it back on this call. But uh, Jamel has uh, been very, very gracious and has said, yeah, okay, let's do it again. He shared such good information. Um, but now we have uh, Jamel, instead of on Skype, we have him on his phone. And uh, I'm on Skype, so hopefully we can make this all work. But Jamel, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. You know, uh, things happen. I, you know, I'm just looking forward to a great call. Yeah. You know, I appreciate you having me once again. And um looking forward to having some fun, man. Awesome. Now, Jamel, um, again, I am sorry. Just wanted to say that publicly. It was such a good interview. Um, we even had a backup, that the the regular interview and the backup, the the two forces, uh, two things that we were using to record, did not work. So, but anyway, um, glad you know that you're back. Was, right? Yeah. <laughs> glad you're back. You know what it was. What, what? The information was so great that you know maybe it was only for our three ears. Ah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but no, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I have notes here, so I already have uh, a bunch of questions to ask. I'm just going to ask them again. And um, oh, sounds good. Now you're in the you're in the Pennsylvania area. Is that correct? That's right. I'm in uh, Berks County, Pennsylvania. Is where I invest. Cool. And uh, talk a little bit about how you got started in real estate. Can you get, can you share your story okay. again of um, what you were doing before? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, as I was uh, telling you before, basically, um, you know, I've always had an entre entrepreneurial spirit. You know, my mother started me, you know, at seven years old in a newspaper route. You know, I started cutting hair when I was nine. You know, I had that newspaper route until I was 13, and, I, and um, you know, shortly after that, I went to go work in a barbershop. Uh, by the time I was 17, I had my own barbershop for a year. Uh, a bad partnership actually made that barbershop close. But, um, you know, like I was saying, you know, before, um, I always thought that, you know, I would grow up, you know, go to college, get a job, and go work for someone and make 50 to 70 grand a year, which was a ton of money for me when I was, you know, 17 years old. I didn't know um, anything else, but, you know, to go out and get a job and, and make that kind of money. You know, we're talking 50 to 70 grand a year. I thought I was rich if I would have been making that kind of money. Right. But, um, you know, just growing up in the projects, you know, where your parents are making 30 grand, you know, 20 to 30 grand a piece each living in New York City, you know, it, it's just rough, you know. So um, I, being that they were making so very little money, you know, I look at look at it now, I make that in a month, you know. But, um, 
you know, I thought 70 grand was a lot of money at the time. Right. Um, but I went and uh, I, I enrolled in college, Medgar Evers in Brooklyn, New York. Um, uh, it was more of a community college, but uh, it was what it was. And um, I never went. Um, I decided that um, I just didn't want to do that. So, um, you know, at the time I was working in a barber shop, and I had this uh, this client who, you know, he had a decent car at the time. To me, it was really nice. You know, again, being a 17-year-old kid, I was fascinated by it, and he told me that he worked for the phone company. So I decided not to go to college, and I went and took the test to go work uh, for the phone company as a field technician. Um, I passed the test, but unfortunately, um, after passing the test, they told me that I wasn't old enough to take on, on a posi- position. I needed to be 21 years old. Okay. I was bummed and, um, you know, just decided that I wanted to uh, try something different. But, you know, to make a long story short, my, uh, my, my aunt, she came across a guy on Wall Street named Brandon. Um, I remember this day like it was yesterday, Joe. Yeah. But um, he ended up giving her a business card. He was looking for cold callers. And this guy was making millions of dollars a year at 25 years old. Um, wow. I ended up contacting him. I went and sat down at the office on, on uh, 40 Wall Street. And um, a week later, I was working for him You know, as a cold caller. Um, this was a spot trading currency firm uh, down on Wall Street yeah. uh, in Manhattan. Um, so... After that, I ended up uh, working for him. I had to get 250 to, to 500 qualified leads, which means that we actually contacted uh, a potential investor. We uh, sent him a, pa- a welcome package, and then Brandon would contact him back. So I had to get 500 of those, and then Brandon had to qualify 10 of those, those leads. After um, Brandon qualified 10, I can go on to become an account opener and open up 10 accounts for myself um, and then take a test um, to get licensed and then ultimately become a broker. So it took me a year um, to go through all of this. um, And as soon as I became a broker, September 11, 2001 took place. And I can remember that day like it was yesterday. Uh, We're talking a week after I became an actual broker and I was going to make some money. Now, now, keep in wow. mind, I, I, you know, when I was down on Wall Street, we had guys 21, 22 years old making millions, five, six million dollars a year. You know, you know, uh, that telephone company job was long out of my head by <laughs> by that time. Right, right. You know, so I, I ended up, um, you know, just uh, losing that job because the company closed down. You know, the main headquarters was in a second tower. Um, then we had another headquarters, which was on, uh, 40 wall street. And then I was working in 61 Broadway. It was just a few blocks down from the towers. But I can remember when that first impact, you know, from that first plane shook the whole building, you know, things were just crazy that day. And as we're walking, you know, we went, we went outside, we evacuated the building as we're walking outside, the second plane hit. And I can remember, um, uh, 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 everyone going away from the buildings. We ended up at the ferry, and then that's when the first tower came down. Um, funny story is um, we actually thought that another plane was going to hit the ferry building because um, uh, the building just started rumbling. 
And next thing you know, all this black smoke just filled the entire ferry. People were running towards the water, jumping in. And I can remember jumping under Seriously. a bench, and this old lady was this old lady was pulling my leg, like trying to pull me out so that she could get under. Um, but um, while I was on the ferry, the second power came down. So um, that's how I actually got started in business, so to speak. Um, but um, you know, at the end of the day, I needed something else to do because the company um, the company closed down after um, the September 11th, uh, 2001. Jamel, I'm incident. just kind of curious because, um, believe it or not, and I may some people may hate me because I because of this. I've always been a big fan of telemarketing and cold calling um, <laughs> because it works. That's what... It does. So It really, really does. What uh, What would you guys do, and how would you get these prospects? And what, what are some of the things you would say to them? Well, it was uh, it was pretty simple. It was a it was a simple script that it was like a canned presentation all the way through. Okay. You know, the funny thing is, and, and I use these strategies when I got into the real estate realm as well. Uh, it, it's kind of funny because you know you can say the same exact thing all day long to a different to different people, and they will never know that you just said the same exact pitch to yeah. to, uh, to 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 someone right before them. You know. But um, what we what we used to do was um, I used to call up as a cold caller, introduce uh, myself and the company, uh, explain to them exactly what we did, and then just say, look, you know, if you know you're interested, we'll send you a welcome package and then contact you back after. That was really easy to do. So that's how we qualify the leads. Um, then we would ask them how much money they had um, uh, in liquid funds to invest. You know, um, just ask these inf this information over the phone, and then from there, um, we would uh, we would just send them in a welcome package if they qualified. They needed at least two hundred and fifty thousand U.S. dollars um, in order to qualify to become a lead. Um, we used to get the leads from Dun and Bradstreet, contact the leads, which were CEOs and business owners of uh, companies throughout the entire world. Wow. I, I, I can remember. I can remember um, the reason why I went in early on September 11, 2001. I, I got to the office at 5 in the morning. The reason I, I went in early, and it, this was a beautiful day. It was nice and warm outside. I can remember it. Clear blue sky. I can remember it like it was yesterday. But I went early because I had clients in Norway to call and um, catch up with clients from Australia. Um, and then from there, I was going to call some U.S. leads. But um, uh, we used to just get the leads from Dun & Bradstreet, qualify the leads. Once we qualify the leads, we would um, uh, uh, send them a welcome package. After they receive the welcome package, two weeks later, we're calling them up and pitching them into investing um, you know, what they can into the company, a minimum of uh, 10000 U.S. dollars. Now, how, um, how would you get past all the gatekeepers and the secretaries? How would you get to the CEO guys? Um, it was, uh, honestly, it was just uh, a matter of uh, just uh, um, sounding important. You know, you're dealing with guys who are, you know, they're worth 100, 200, 300 million dollars. And it was really just about, um, just about schmoozing the secretary a little bit. Sometimes it was really tough, especially in the U.S., to get through um, the secretaries, but you know, in other countries, believe it or not, like Australia at the time, Norway at the time, they just let you right through. 
And, uh, wow. <laughs> you know, okay. it was unbelievable. The, the, they were um, untapped markets, so to speak. You know, but, um, you know, the people were really, really nice in other countries. I can remember calling Ireland, England, you know, just all over the world. It was absolutely incredible. Wow. Okay. Um, but that's how I learned how to handle phone conversation. And that actually benefited me. I, I didn't yeah. frown upon the fact that I didn't make a million dollars at 21 years old. You know, as a, as a currency broker, I, I looked at the positive. You know, it, it helped me later on in life, even up until today. I'm so confident when I'm talking to sellers. I'm so confident when I'm talking to private lenders. And, you know, I'm, I'm just confident on the phone and in person. And um, I can, you know, um, I can basically talk anybody into whatever I want if I, if I needed it. Right. You know, not to pat myself on the back. <laughs> well, um, that's a that's an invaluable skill to learn sales and how to talk. It to is. Sellers. It really is, man. Good. You know, but just just uh, moving forward, I basically jumped into real estate shortly after. The way I did that, um, I first became an agent, and right around the same time, I started investing in real estate or at least looking into it. And I can remember, you know, I was telling you this story the other day. You know, one investor. Um, that I used to do business with came home with a check for 500 grand, and that was enough to to show me it was just shy of five. It was like 493 thousand wow. dollars, and I made like 48 thousand on that deal, and that was just enough to show me that yeah, I need to really focus on what I'm doing here because um, there's a ton of money in this business, you know. So. Um, you know, what I was doing at the time, you know, they didn't call it wholesaling back then. Yeah. You know, basically what most guys were doing were buying houses, putting some money into them, selling them for more money. And that's basically what, you know, I started out doing. I started off rehabbing houses first. And then from there, um, you know, if you're, in a, if you're in a rehab business, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, if, if, you don't, if you're limited on capital, and I was at the time, you know, again, Coming from the projects, yeah, I, wor I worked down on Wall Street. I really didn't make any money on Wall Street um, because as soon as I became a broker, the my business was out of business. You know, so right. you know from you know I was basically broke, and you know at 21 years old, you know I you know I'm still wet behind the ears, not knowing what, what what's going on. But at the end of the day. Um, uh, what I was getting at was, if you're in a rehab business, um, you can have a rehab project going on, but if you don't have some type of cash uh, reserve or at least some type of cash coming in in between that rehab project, right? Um, it can be a daunting thing because it could take you three to six months to sell the house and get paid that thirty, forty thousand dollars. Oh yeah. Um, so you're kind of like you're starving before that, you know. So uh, I, I can remember my first few rehab projects where, you know, uh, you know, I just had to uh, uh, try to find a way to make some money in between in order to keep afloat in the business. And I was getting all of these leads but didn't know what to do with them. Um, so I, I can remember thinking to myself, what if I just passed these deals off to, to, to some of my friends who were buying at the time as well? And I ended up starting to sell these leads for short money, we're talking a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred dollars a lead. Um, they they would they would give me just to get the qualified lead, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, 
what if I could sell it for more money? Hmm. And that's basically how I started wholesaling houses. Um, I can remember seeing this one guy, he was a young kid doing it at the time, and he was doing the same exact thing. And he was making five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a deal, and that kind of sparked my interest. So just asking questions and applying what I learned, which is the key factor to all of this, if you, you can Amen. learn, you can listen to these, these podcasts, you can listen, you can buy every course in the world, you can have the best coach in the world, you can have, you know, the best, you can have Donald Trump as your coach, and if you don't apply what he tells you, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. You're going to be you know, broke. So you're going to be broke, exactly. So the, the key to all of this is not being afraid Getting out there, taking massive action, and getting massive results. Even with a coach, you will fail. You will fall. You know, you will make mistakes. You know, your coach is there to guide you, but at the same time, he's there to help you minimize your mistakes, but you still will make mistakes, and that's the best way to learn. Yeah. But if you don't at least get out there and give it 200% of your effort, you will not make it, you know, especially in the beginning. It does get easier as you grow and you do a few deals, but in the very beginning, you have to work extremely hard to make this happen. And that's what, you know, for me at least, it took me 13 months to make my first $1,500 in this business. You know, wow. Um, and well, how did you? Yeah. How did you make any money in I, between then? I was uh I was working in a barbershop. I went back to okay. working in a barbershop after um nine eleven for a little while. Okay. You know. I had to. But I knew that this was a business that um could bring in a lot of money. I can remember, you know, just looking into the business itself, I can remember um getting a Carlton Sheets course three o'clock in the morning and just kind of trying those things but it just really wasn't working for me yeah so the benefits of um you know me purchasing that carlton sheets course really was um to get an understanding of investing as a whole right. but you know i was a i was able to contact these investors and just get in touch get into the investors community so to speak and you know the, an easy way to do that today is to just simply join your local RIA. Join your local real estate investors association, and you'll be right in the mix of what's actually going on in your market. Again, I didn't have that formal real estate investors education. I, you know, I learned this business through trial and error, really. And um, you know, all of that stuff can be skipped these days. There's so much information on real estate investing um, these days that you can literally go out, you know, apply what. Uh, uh, what's being taught out there and make money, you know, without having to guess what's actually going to work and what's not. Yeah. You know, fast forward to today, though, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing deals every single week. Um, I try to do at least uh, uh, five to seven deals a month. And, um, you know, during the summer months, it's a little slower because um, uh, uh, there's there's two, two aspects to um, – uh, two reasons why uh, the summer months are a little slower than the winter months for me. Uh, up north, um, houses are not as expensive in the winter time. Really? Uh, I'm sorry, in the summertime. Um, when I when I say that, what I what I mean is, like uh, in the summertime, you don't really have that that heat bill. You know what I mean? Which okay. absolutely creams some landlords out here. 
Um, you don't have, you know, uh, um, your bills are not as expensive um, in the summertime as it is in the wintertime. So my volume actually goes up in the wintertime. In the summertime, people are away on vacation more, so you may not find as many leads. And this is when you have to market a little harder. You know, we were talking a few weeks ago about knowing um, the dynamics of how many leads you have to send out to create appointments, how many appointments you have to go on to, to make um, offers and ultimately get a deal. Right. Um, this can be scaled up. You know, you can, you can literally, let's say, for instance, spend a 1000 bucks a week on marketing knowing you're going to make five back or ten back. You know, um, that can all be scaled up. But, right. you know, um, um, basically that's, that's what, in, you know, I was able to, to accumulate over the years of, uh, of investing. Um, so okay. that's a, a long story of how I actually got started. So uh, how did you, houses. so you just over the next few years just really kind of learned how to um, grow and expand your business, be more efficient and productive and uh, you're always learning something new, though, aren't you, Jamil? Absolutely. I never stop learning. Um, in fact, uh, I'd be a fool if I stopped learning how to do, uh, how to, how to do things in, in, in this business. Um, I'm never going to be a one-trick pony in this business. I'm always going to try and uh, 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 figure new things out and um, uh, revolutionize my, my, my own business, at least. Right. And, and into the best business it can possibly be. But to be honest with you, you know, um, this really is, especially, you know, we were talking about rehabbing earlier. That's a simple business, um, but wholesaling is even simpler. Yeah. And if you're brand new on this call, you know, and you've never done a deal before, even if you have, wholesaling needs to be one of the primary things in your business, period. Um, it can... Uh, provide, you know, um, consistent cash flow for you. Um, it can provide chunks of cash for you. Uh, not as big as rehab deals, but enough to to um, really build a business and feed your family at the same time. Um, in order to get started wholesaling, if I were, you know, if I'm brand new, wet behind the ear, uh, wet behind the ears in real estate investing, I'm going to search for cash buyers first. Yeah, and the reason the reason why you want to do that, you know, it's not only to build up a cash buyers list. Honestly, you know, out of thousands of buyers that I have on my list, I probably only sell to maybe five or ten of them all the time. Um, but the reason why you want to build up your cash buyers list first is to get to know the market. You can spit market research if you contacted your cash buyers first. You know, so um, case in point, if I wanted to go out to a brand new market. Let's say I wanted to, to go to, um, uh, let's, let's say, say, call it anywhere, anywhere city in anywhere state U.S. I'm okay. going to go out and find the cash buyers first. And what I want to know, there's four things. And if you guys have a pen and a piece of paper, write this down. It's very important. Yes. Yeah, um, I want to know four things from these cash buyers. Four simple questions. Number one, where are you currently buying houses? Where have you recently bought uh, purchased properties? So that's going to tell me what area I need to invest in or at least focus on finding properties in. So where are you buying your houses? Um, 
Number two, I want to know what types of houses are you buying in these areas? Are you buying single-family residential? Are you buying, you know, multi-units? What are you buying? Um, and your questions are going to be a little different when it comes to multi-units. You're going to have maybe two or three more questions, and I'll share that with you on this call as well. Um, number three, you want to find out what price range have you recently purchased properties for in those areas, for these types of properties, and how fast can you close is the fourth question. Right. Now, if, uh, they're, pur if they're purchasing multi-units in the area, you want to know how much um, per unit they're actually paying. Um, so let's say, for instance, if the house, you know, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, um, condition ever. If the house was a 10, what's, what's your maximum dollar amount you're paying for units in the area? And with, you know, whatever number they come up with will tell you how much um, you can actually pay per unit. So let's just say in my area, they're paying $20 a unit right now. Um, if I pick, up, pick it up for 15 a unit, I know I'm in a profit. Okay? So that's just an, uh, an easy, simple way to wholesale residential uh, um, um, multi-unit properties. Um, obviously, there's other factors like income and expenses and things like that as well um, that you want to take into account. But at least you can get a general idea of how to uh, of how to approach a multi-unit when it comes to um, to uh, 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 wholesaling them to cash buyers. Right. Okay. Um, Another thing you want to you want to do once you have all of this information is start targeting your marketing in that area. Here are some of the things that I like to do. I call this my profit triangle. Um, it's uh, I, I like to bid on private owned properties, HUD properties, and REOs. That's my triangle right there. HUD, private owned, and REOs. In I'm fact, writing that you know, down. We were talking last. That's good. We were That's talking last time, Joe, about you know, how I made 28 offers just a, a week and a half, two weeks ago, and I got seven of them accepted. I actually backed out of one of them, though, um, uh, and, and it was actually the same day we, we, we did the last call. Uh, the reason I backed out is because, um, you know, I, I didn't uh, realize it was a manufactured home. These are homes that I did not see before I made the offers. I just made a low enough offer, got it accepted, then I did my, my research on the property. Now, I'm a little experienced in doing this. I'm not telling everyone on a call to do that. What I would recommend you do is see the property, understand the numbers, and then make the offer. For me, I'm in a rehab business too, so I know how much stuff is going to cost in order for me to uh, get the house in tip top shape in order to get top dollar. For you, you need to go see the house first, then make your offer. For me, I can make an offer over the phone and then do my research after. But long story short, one of the houses was a uh, a manufactured home. Uh, it was the ARV on it was eighty grand. I got it for thirty eight, but I backed out because it was a manufactured home. It's almost impossible for someone to get financing on that if I was to sell it, you know, uh, retail. Right. And none of my cash buyers are interested in manufactured homes, so it was a lose lose for me. I gave the agent a courtesy call. She appreciated that. Um, because I could have just left her hanging uh, uh, in the dust, I immediately contacted her and said, "Look, I'm sorry. You know, we're, we're not going to be interested in this uh, property, unfortunately, not knowing it was a manufactured home." So you treat people the way you want to be treated in this business as well. 
Um, that was the moral of that story. But we ended up making all of these offers. We got seven, seven accepted. Um, in fact, we're going to be closing on some of them in a few weeks. Um, uh, I ended up getting one out in Virginia with another with a, with, with a uh, uh, student partner of mine. In yeah. fact, Alex uh, Alex was interested in that one, but we honestly, uh, um, uh, yeah. I don't think he went to go see it yet. And we might have another buyer at one fifteen. Okay. We paid that. We paid a hundred thousand for that one for a two hundred and eight thousand dollar house. So that wasn't bad at all. Wow. Well, that's a fifteen thousand dollar profit right there. And nice. that's, if I include that, we're talking eight deals. I had another student just make uh, uh, an offer on a HUD property and got one accepted yesterday for 38000 too, and that's an $85,000 house. So, so um, I'm Jamil, doing deals all the time. Not only am I doing deals, my students are as well, Joe. Talk about um, what are HUD properties and how do you bid on HUD properties? Um, HUD properties are pretty simple, man. You know, HUD properties are basically um, government-owned properties. Okay, so um, instead of a, an actual bank owning it, the government will own it, and and they also have VA properties, which are, which are you know that's a different uh, type of property that I, I personally like to stay away from, uh, uh, veteran uh, um, properties, VA properties because they don't take care of them as well as HUD takes care of their properties. Okay, but um, interesting. Uh, the way you you bid on HUD properties, uh, it's really easy. Actually, they they used to have it to where um, they had um, uh, a bunch of asset managers um, uh, and their websites. You had to go through their website to place a bid on you know, their website. HUD actually made it simple as of like last year or something like that, and they simplified it by creating one site called HUDHomestore.com. Okay. So if you just go to HUDHomestore.com, you can search for every single product in your area. And as an investor, what you want to do is um, on the drop-down, uh, there's going to be a lot of selections. You want to enter your city, enter all of the information that you need for your city, and then on a the drop-down, just put investor, um, a- investor, uh, uh, pro- basically there's owner, oc, and then there's investor. Uh, you want to select right. the investor selection. Okay, and this will give you all of the uh, properties that investors can bid on. Um, and from there, it's all about just... You know, just making a low enough offer, um, and then just build your way up, $100 increments. Um, so if HUD doesn't accept your offer, go back in and bid up another $100, and then just keep doing it until they accept your offer. The key is to find out what the percentage is that HUD is accepting in your area. And in order to do that, you have to make a ton of offers. Right. It's a numbers game, guys. It's like digging for gold. You know, so if you're digging for gold, you're not going to stop until you find the gold if you know the gold is there. <laughs> you know, um, Sometimes. unless you're uh, right, unless unless you're reading three feet from gold, and where the guy stopped three feet from gold and then sold the uh, sold the piece of land to someone who was smart enough to get, you know, someone out there to analyze right. the land and figure out that it was only three feet from gold. Well, sometimes you need to dig you through know, a lot of dirt to get to the gold. Another exactly. You got to dig through a lot of dirt to get. Same thing with private-owned sellers. You got to dig, dig through, a, dig through a lot of dirt in order to get to the gold. Yeah. You know, and that's just—it's well, a numbers game, guys. That's all it is. Can you give an example of um, a typical HUD deal for you, Jamil, or maybe one of your most recent ones? Um, 
Sure. Uh, basically, I I had a um, let me just see which one. Um, I had this uh, a recent HUD deal where I ended up um, purchasing a seventy thousand dollar house for thirteen grand, and then see with HUD you have to do a double closing, so it's going to cost you some money to close it, to pay the transaction funding fee, and then sell it. So I ended up finding someone to buy it for twenty thousand dollars and made. It made uh, 4000 bucks on it. But at the end of the day, um, basically all I did was I, I kept bidding on that property. I watched the price go from 45000 You know, I bid and bid, and they just weren't biting on my offer. Um, and then I, I watched the price go down to 30000 Then at that $30,000 mark, I watched it go down and down and down. Before you know it, they were right in my price range. And I ended up getting it for thirteen thousand five hundred bucks. Um, the thing with with HUD properties that everyone on the call should remember is that HUD's offers, when they accept your offer, is really a computer generated offer. You know, there's HUD has formulas for each city um, that you know for offers that they would actually accept. Okay, so when you submit your offer, a computer is actually um, gonna either accept or decline your offer. So that's why you have to know uh, what percentage of the ARV HUD or what percentage of the asking price HUD will actually accept. So we just figured out with a student yesterday that HUD is accepting 93% of the asking price in you know uh, certain parts of Florida. And my area is a little different. It's uh, more like 60%. Of the asking price, right? But then that you know, see, that's like, that that can change though, doesn't? I mean, there it, it can change. Yes, so you, it's, it's on a per property basis, right? Basically, you know, because some properties need more work than others. Well, and it depends so really, on. I mean, at least you'll be thrown in the ballpark, though. Right, but you know, let's say you find out because in St. Louis they would always counter back at eighty-six percent of their right. uh, asking price. They'd always counter back at eighty-six percent. Well. But there were times when, and I've not been on a lot of HUDs, but I have friends who have and, and um, some close friends who have. And it's always, uh-huh. every, you know, it's, nobody can explain it, but somebody in, in the HUD office says, you know what, let's, let's get rid of these properties. And they'll just take the next offer that comes in, and it could be at 50 cents of what they were, 50% of what they're asking for. So there's, right. some, there's no, really no rhyme or reason. But the key is you're consistently bidding over and over again. On these properties, exactly, exactly, and that's kind of that's Kate. That's that's kind of the point I was trying to make there, um, where you know the longer the the property sits, the better, you know, because they're going to be more motivated to just unleash the properties. Same thing goes for the bank-owned properties for me. You know, I, you know, I was telling you last time that I like to focus primarily on properties that have been listed on the market for at least ninety days, bare minimum. Right. You know, there's occasions where where I will bid on something that just came out on the market, but I'm expecting a lot of competition with that. The reason why I like to focus on the properties that have been sitting out there for a minimum of three months is because, you know, these are properties that the prices were probably relatively high in the beginning. No one's bid, everyone's going through the properties. No one's bidding on them, and the banks are still paying for, for maintenance and things like that. They're accumulating expenses spending money on this property and at the end of the day 
you know, it, it becomes more of a liability for them to hold on to it. So I like to focus on those uh, properties that are out there for a while. The longer, the better for me. And then uh, as long as they're vacant and need work, I'm all over them. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm Jamel, is there, is, there a particular, do you, is there a particular neighborhoods that you go after, or do you just go, do you just bid on all the homes that are over 90 days old? Everything where, uh, everything where my cash buyers are focusing on, okay. you know, every Good. area, I should say, and that's why it's so important to to remember to uh, to uh, uh, ask those questions in the beginning, so you can get an idea of where to focus. Right. Now, at this point, I can buy anywhere in the county because I have buyers all over the place. Um, in the beginning, though, I had to focus on particular areas. You know, if I don't have buyers in those areas, I'm not going to look at properties in those areas. Right. You know, so you wanna you wanna um, focus on where your buyers are interested. And then you can, it's supply and demand. That's all it really is. You know, you, you can supply the demand by giving them what they want for less than what they're willing to spend, um, and then you get, you get to keep the spread. Nice. So, again, you know, for me, I focus on houses that were on the market, on the MLS, for a minimum of 90 days. They're vacant, and they need work. And, and you can find out all of that information in the remarks. So uh, how do the, you uh, MLS list. now? You have access to the MLS, right? Or does somebody say I actually you these don't? Um, I have a really good realtor. Okay, all right. So then, um, how do you know if the house? And I, by the way, I'm, I'm asking these questions because not because, well, <laughs> I know the answers. To no, these, these are questions. really these, good questions, these man. Are simple <laughs> questions. But there's some people listening who just don't know what what on earth we're talking about. What is a HUD and all that stuff? But all right, so how do you know if a property is vacant, or how do you know whether to bid on a particular house? Let's say it's already 90 days old. Let's say it's uh -huh. in the zip code that you're interested in. What else do you look for to bid on that property? Okay, so the next thing I want to do, once I have, once the, uh, the first part of the criteria is passed, basically what I want to do, Joe, is uh, it's really simple. I want to look at some comps. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can find comps. Um, a friend of ours, uh, I'm sure you know him, Kent Clovier. Mm -hmm. He has uh, um, findcompsnow.com, you know, which is probably one of the easiest uh, places to go and find comps if you go to Zillow. You know, I just want to be thrown in a ballpark. I'm not looking for accurate, accurate information. I just want to get an idea of what houses are selling for. The best thing you can do, though, um, especially when you're working with your realtor, is to have your realtor send comps along with the property listings. So what you'll do is you'll weed out um, uh, the properties that don't meet that initial criteria of uh, being on the market for 90 days, vacant, and needing work. What you can do is um, just weed, weed out the ones that don't meet the criteria and have your realtor send you comps for all of the other properties. Here's the comp criteria that I like to focus on. Number one... Um, I need houses that, if it's in rural or suburban areas, um, it's going to be slightly different than if it's in a city. You know, in a city, I'm looking for properties that sold within a three to five block radius um, that are like in kind, um, and they're within 200 square feet, whether it's up or down. So, for instance, if the property is 1,500 square feet, I'm looking at every single house that's 1,300 to 1,700 square feet, and that's within a three to five block radius, and the property has to be a like-in-kind property. 
Yeah. In rural areas, in rural areas, I'm looking at, you know, this the same type of house, you know, uh, like in kind houses, um, within that 200 square foot radius, but uh, within that 200 uh, square foot um, uh, parameter, but I'm looking at them within a half mile radius. Okay, and the reason why in city areas you want to uh, narrow it down to three to five blocks is because um, a, a, a neighborhood in a city can rapidly change from block to block as opposed to suburban areas where, you know, you'll have uh, uh, nicer areas and it's more spread out, okay? Right. Um, so that's typically what, I, what my criteria is. I want to I see everything that's pending, sold, and active on the market from my realtor, and I'll have them send all of the comps over. I'll look at what the house can realistically sell for if it was completely renovated, and then I'll look at the asking price of the house. Now, if the asking price is relatively close to the after-repair value, we're talking, let's say, if, if, it, if it's a $100,000 house, Joe, and they're asking ninety, I'm probably going to put that to the side. Yeah. Um, that's not what I'm looking for. If the asking price is 110 but the ARV is 100 I'm throwing that lead in the garbage. Okay, the other ones that are 90 um I'll put to the side and just watch them come down. If the asking price is let's say seventy thousand or sixty five thousand and the price of the home is a hundred thousand, I'm making an appointment to go see that house. Because nine times out of ten, the bank or the seller will be motiv motivated enough, um, understanding that the house needs some work, um, because the the price will reflect it. Um, they may be negotiable and I can go in and, and make an offer according to my numbers in order to try my best to get a deal. Okay. okay. Um, so if I go see, let's say 25 houses and I make 25 offers, you know, the chances are I'm probably going to pick up one or two of those deals, not going to pick up all of them. All right. So talk about yeah. how you make your offers. How do you put that together? Do you look at do you look at what similar homes are selling for and you know, okay, well, I'm going to have to be five grand less than any of those. And so that's, and then you subtract 10 grand for your wholesaling fee and that's the number you offer. Or do you look at after repair values and then do the Mayo formula? Yeah. Basically, basically I, 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 I run a formula. It's um, the after repair value, meaning what houses will actually sell for completely fixed up. Um, and I multiply that by 60%, and I minus the repairs, and that's it. Okay. You know, and then so what I like to do is sell it for 65 to 70%, preferably 70 cents on a dollar minus repairs. Yeah. So I'm buying it at 60 minus repairs, and I'm selling it at 70 minus repairs. Now, so when you come up with you, that, though, you, you still look at what other active homes are selling for, right? Because what if a similar home is actively absolutely. selling for less than what you calculate? You'll then you still adjust your number down from there. Right, exactly. I want to get an average number of what um, houses are selling for in the area, and that's how I determine how much uh, um, how much the house is actually worth. Another way to, to do it is to look at the tax assessment value. And if you could get the property within 70, 60 to 70% of the tax assessment value uh, minus repairs is usually pretty good too. Um, it depends on the area though. 
you know, that really all depends on the area. In most areas, the tax assessment value will be lower than what the house is actually worth. Right. So if you could get it within a relatively decent, you know, within a relatively decent discount from the tax assessed value, then you're doing good. Okay. Okay. But the object is to just get an idea of what houses are actually selling for in the area, multiply that by 60 minus the repairs needed, um, and then you know make your offer. That's your maximum amount that you can pay. Uh, an easy way, if you're not a rehabber, you know, or if you're not good at uh, finding out, you know, how much your house is going to need in order to uh, be fixed up completely, uh, just find some contractors in the area. You can go to Craigslist under uh, the services section down towards the bottom of the Craigslist page and look on the labors and labor and skills. Um, you, you'll find contractors just in the search bar, put in free estimates. You'll find a ton of contractors in your area who will offer free estimates on your property. And then what you can do is just let them know that you're, you, you buy and sell houses to other investors. And um, if they're willing to give you free estimates, you'll submit their bid, their estimate with the, uh, the, the property itself. And uh, they'll be able to pick up some business that way from the other investors. That's a, that's a great tip. You know, so um, that makes that makes life so much easier for you. You know, nine times out of ten, you don't even have to show up show up at the properties anymore. You can just have the contractors take pictures of each room. Uh, what I like to do is have them take pictures of all four corners of each room in a house, um, and then submit all of those pictures with their with their um, estimate. And then guess what? You just kill two birds with one stone that way. What, what, what you're actually doing is you're, you're receiving the pictures from the contractors. You can use those to show to your cash buyers, and then you're submitting the actual, uh, an actual estimate from a, a licensed contractor, um, and that justifies the amount of money that you, you'll be asking for the, uh, the property when you sell it to your cash buyers. Nice. So, again, you know? I'm looking here. I, I just opened Craigslist while we were talking, and you're – what part of Craigslist did you look in again? Uh, if you go down to the services section, let me open up Craigslist on my iPad as well. But if you go down to the services section there, and go to, uh, labor, I'm just, uh, I'm, skilled I'm trade. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yep, I'm gonna look, look on the labor or skill trade. Let me just uh, open up Craigslist here. Um, services, you see, uh, skill trade or labor. You can look, look under both. You, you may want to look under skill trade first. And then you see under, uh, you see where it says search for up at the top there? Yeah. Just put free estimates. Just uh, That'll be your keyword, free estimates. Yeah, I got a bunch of them. And you got a bunch of them. You know, and these are all people that you can contact. Say, hey, I'm a real estate investor in the area. I deal with contractors all the time. Um, right now I'm looking for a free estimate on a property that I'm uh, um, purchasing and uh, wanted to know if you could help me out, then when you meet them there, you can give them your little spiel about how, you know, look, I sell these houses um, faster than, you know, anything else. I, I sell these houses more than I actually hold on to them. Um, but I have a, a, a network of cash buyers who purchase these properties from me. They trust me. And, um, you know, if you can provide these free estimates for me, I can get you a lot of business. You know, and 
you know, one hand washes the other, both hands wash the face. That's an old New York uh, <laughs> saying. <laughs> That's funny. You know? Cool. So, uh, I mean, look how quick it was for you to find them in your area, Joe. Oh, I got a ton of them here. It's amazing. You know? Um, <laughs> all right, so you're making offers. Um, yep. You're not too worried about offending the other person who is receiving those offers, are you? <laughs> not really. It's a numbers game, man. Yeah. You're not going to please. You're in a people business. You're not going to please everybody. You know, it is what it is what it is. You know, all you have to do is just make offers. You know, it's business. It's nothing personal. You know, not to say that the people are bad people or you're a bad person because you're making a low enough offer. No, it's a business. There's a there's a business model that you have to follow. You know, um, you know, and you know, it's it's a little different when you're dealing with uh, REOs, Joe, and yeah. HUDs, yeah. than it is when you're dealing with a private seller. You know, um, why, why don't we talk about private sellers a little bit? Because um, I'm sure everyone on the call. Well, would before, like to hear. I, definitely, but I want to ask you something real quick first. Um, sure. When you submit your offer on an MLS-listed property, is there anything special uh -huh. you do with the um, with the agent who's listing the property? Do you offer them any kind of special, uh, to let them represent you and get both sides of the commission or anything like that? Um, it depends on the situation. I've been working with one realtor for several years. Um, and he's pretty loyal. He's really good at getting my offers accepted. Um, in some cases, when you're brand new, you may want to contact the ag the agent who listed the property um, because they'll be more inclined to, to working with you. Okay. At this point, you know, the agents in the area know who I am. They know I can close. So they're not really worried. You know, they'll they'll rather take a risk on me closing than they would on having it listed and trying to sell it themselves. Yeah. You know, but when you're brand new, you might want to contact the agent who actually listed the property and let them know, look, you know, you get to make both sides of the commission here, you know, get my offer accepted, you okay. know. Okay. Um, that's what I would do. Good. Basically, what I was getting at was um, when you are another, new. Another thing. Real quick, Jamil. Another thing I was going to mention, Joe, is because yeah, go ahead. A, a, a question that I get a lot is who actually pays the agent. Okay. And yeah. you know, honestly, the seller pays the agent. The bank, in this case, would pay the agent. So you don't have to worry about paying the agent. You know, they the the they're working primarily for the seller than for you. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Very good. Now, um, you're going to talk about private sellers next. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, though, about neighborhoods that you're going. I know you have your favorite zip codes. So you don't care how rough the neighborhood is. If you have buyers that are looking for properties there, you go after and bid those properties, don't you? Absolutely. Good. As long as I have buyer activity there. And we're not talking about, you know, onesie, twosie deals because you want to you wanna be where the most activity is taking place in your market. So you want to be in the hottest spot, you know, um, if you find that there's 50 cash transactions within the past two weeks in one area and only two in the other, I'm going to focus on the one where there's 50. I'm not going to focus on the one where there's two, if that makes any sense. Right. You know, and that's why it's so important to, uh, to do your, your research beforehand and speak to these cash buyers beforehand. Because with cash buyers, you're going to notice a pattern. You know, if you speak to, I guarantee if you speak to 10 cash buyers today, Six of them are going to tell you that they're invested in the same area because investors roll, roam in flocks. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. You know, they like to stick to the same neighborhoods as other investors. No one wants to reinvent the wheel, and you don't want to reinvent the wheel in this case either. You know, so you'll find that investors will mainly be investing in the same areas in your city or county. Um, and then you'll find that they're all investing in the same types of houses within the same price range. And it's your job to find out what this information is and then find that same exact house, that ideal house in that area for less money and then sell it to them for the spread. Right. Very good. You know, and, you know, with private, with private stuff is a little different though. Go ahead. Um, I actually have a VA who answers the calls for me. Um, I get so many calls that I can remember being overwhelmed trying to run the entire business myself. You grow as a real estate investor when you start to outsource. Now, here's a trick. Um, if you don't have any money to pay someone hourly, um, what you can do is just offer them a percentage of the deal. So I can remember when I first hired my first uh, VA, and this is a U.S.-based virtual assistant. This is not someone overseas. I actually have someone overseas, Joe, who uh -huh. I pay a dollar fifty an hour to do all of my data entry. <laughs> um, but um, you know, a U.S.-based company. Um, I have a. She used to be a stockbroker, and um, I pay her ten percent of my deal. So if I make five grand, she makes five hundred bucks. If I don't close a deal, she doesn't make any money, right. and that's it. You know, that's basically what I worked out with her. Really good on the phone too. You know, she used to be a stockbroker. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, but um, what you want to do is realize that, you know, there's, you have to get incoming leads when it comes to, um, when it comes to private sellers. You know, here's here here's the uh here are the five main leads that I like to target. I like fire damage properties. I love probate leads. Those are my biggest spreads. Um, I like absentee owned, free and clear. Um, and, and one thing that you want to remember with all of these properties too, is that you know absentee owned will cover. If you if you're buying a, a list of let's say absentee owned properties, it's going to cover probate. It's going to cover fire damage. Right. It's, it's going to cover, you know, um, uh, 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 absentee owned obviously and free and clear. You know, but you know you can still go do things like go to your fire company or, or uh, check the website for the fire department in your area and see what properties recently had a fire. You know, um, you can still go down to the probate office and pull the, the, the latest probate leads, yeah. you know, the register of wills office. But when you buy a, like a, a list of absentee owned, this will include some of that as well. Okay. okay. So just be mindful of that. But the object is to, um, the object really is to uh, consistently target these leads every week if you can or every month. You know, uh, create a small budget for yourself and dedicate yourself to that budget. So if you can only spend 250 bucks a month, you know, spend that $250 a month until you get your first deal. Then you might take $1,000 out of that deal and uh, um, consistently try to send out $1,000 at a time. And then that $1,000 can turn into, before you know it, you'll be spending $10,000 a month and making 100 grand a month or 50 grand a month. You know, um, it really is that simple. But it's all about being consistent and aggressive, 
okay? If you don't have any money right now, that's fine. Go driving for dollars in those neighborhoods that your buyer told you that they were interested in. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's really simple to go out, find some vacant properties with piled up newspapers and tall glass in front. It looks like it needs some work. Write that, that seller a yellow letter, you know. Um, simple yellow letter can say something like, Hi, my name is Jamel Gibbs, and I would like to make you a cash offer on 123 Main Street uh, in Reading, PA. When you get a chance, give me a call. My cell phone number is this. Um, I look forward to speaking with you. Handwrite that letter in red ink, and that's the, you know, that's the, uh, that's the letter that you can use in order to make a lot of money with. You know, um, the object is to get the phone ringing. And when you're on the phone with the seller, it's, it's really simple, Joe. Uh, there's six, five or six main questions that I like to get out of them in order to qualify them. Okay. So what I have my virtual assistant do, or for, for those of you listening, here are, the, here are the questions that you can ask. Number one, you know, you want to get their contact information and verify the property address. But the first thing I, I need to know is, you know, um, could you tell me a little bit about the property? That's an open-ended question. Right. Okay. Before you know it, the seller is telling you their entire life story and everything you need to know about the property. And as, you're, as they're telling you this story, just ask them stuff like, so, you know, when was the last time the bathroom was updated? Or, you know, when, the la- when was the last time you, you've actually done the roof? Did you ever um, replace the boiler? You know, um, on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, how much work or, or uh, what's the condition of the property? You know, that's one of my favorite lines. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, what's the condition of the property in your eyes? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, that will give you a general idea of how much work the property actually needs. Then my next, you know, once I find out, if, you know, if they can tell me a little bit about the property, I want to know, you know, um, uh, um, why are you selling? And you don't want to give them uh, an easy exit strategy on this. You, you want to really find out. You want them to dig deep into why they're actually selling the property. Um, because you can help them remember when you're negotiating why they're actually selling the property later on. Uh, once you find out why they're selling, find out how soon they need to get, get out of the property or how soon they need to sell the property. This, will, uh, this is another step to figuring out how motivated they really are. If someone tells you that, oh, I'm not looking to sell, I'm just uh, pricing out, you know, getting some offers and maybe in another six months I'm looking to sell, that's telling you that they're not motivated right now. But if they say, look, I- I'm just trying to get rid of this house like yesterday, then obviously you can get a much better price on that house. Then the next thing I need to know is how much are you asking for the house yeah. to see if they're realistically thinking along your lines. You know, once I find out how much they're asking, I want to know. I'm sorry. Once they once I find out how much they're asking, I want to know. Um, uh, I want to know the asking price. I want to know if I had a bag of cash for you today, and I came to you and I said, Joe, you know, I know you're you're asking hundred thousand dollars for the for, for for your property, but if I had a bag of cash for you today. What's the what's the least amount? How much need how much will need to be in that bag of cash in order for us to to uh, create a deal today? Mm-hmm. And then you, you know nine times out of ten the seller is always going to go lower. Then my final question is: Is that the best you can do? Good. And almost always, like clockwork, they'll drop off of their their lowest number. Believe it or not, 
You know, so I want to know what the asking price is. I want to know, you know, what the least amount they're willing to take for that, um, for the for the property. Realistically, what do you really want for the house? Okay, I understand you're asking this much, but how much do you really want for the house? Yeah. And then you ask them, is that the best you can do? And almost always, nine times out of ten, they'll always drop off of that number. Case in point, I I, I bought a probate house, you know, for twenty five hundred bucks, and I closed it about a month and a half ago. Okay. It was an eighty thousand dollar house. The guy, he he was taking care of the house for four years. His father died four years ago. He's paying all these taxes, trying to maintain the house. It was becoming too much for him. He's a young guy too, twenty five years old. Um, I ended up, uh, he contacted me on one of my bandit signs, um, and said, look, you know, I'm asking for $30,000 for the house. And after talking to him and really understanding that he really wanted to get rid of this house, um, his reason why was he was taking care of it. He really didn't have the money to do it. His father died. He, he really just didn't want the house. So I'm talking to him and I say, okay, I know you're asking $30,000, if I had a bag of cash for you today, though, what do you really want for the house? Yeah. Don't you know he dropped from 30 down to 12 in a, in a, in a heartbeat? <laughs> then I said, okay, is that the, I said, is that the best you can do? Wow. And then he came down to eight. He said, no, nah, I think if you could come up with 8,000 cash, we, we got ourselves a deal. So it was a deal before I even went into the house. Nice. I knew it. I knew it was a deal. But. I want to get the best price possible. So when I went over to the house, noticing it needed more work than I anticipated, guess what I did? I offered him $2,500, and he took it just wow. like that. You know, so from wow. 30000 he dropped down to 2500 bucks. Well, you know, that reminds me because as you've been talking, you, you're getting me excited again about um, making offers on properties on the MLS. I know you're talking about dealing with <laughs> private sellers and talking to private sellers, but you know I'm looking in some areas here, and I see a lot of homes in that price range, Jamil. Um, not uh -huh. a lot, but I mean, there's certain areas where there's homes that are listed for sale for five grand in St. Louis that wow. um, are just aren't selling right now. Uh, other homes for ten, maybe. There's certain neighborhoods. I mean, is it just even worth your time to? You know, even make an offer on a property that's actively listed for over 90 days on the MLS for five grand. Hey, I got to tell you something, man. For me, I don't. I, I never forget where I came from. Yeah. And if I can make a buck, I don't care if it's a thousand dollars on a house. Hmm. And number one, it's another property under my belt. I'm not spending really any time on these properties to uh, make money on them. And you know, another thousand dollars is another thousand dollars for me. If I have a buyer for it, I'm going to flip it. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, so. I, I kind of, I, I just remembered as I was asking the question. There was a deal we did just a few months ago, where um, I forget how he found it. He responded to a marketing or it was an internet lead, and he wanted uh -huh. thirty for the house. And there were similar homes actively listed for ten. And wow. uh, we told him they can't do it, but we can maybe offer you three. He accepted it, three thousand dollars. Just like that. Just like 10 that. Ten percent of what he was asking. Right. So then we <laughs> we gave him a we I didn't we didn't, we didn't even go see the house. No, I'm sorry, uh, my my business partner did. We saw the house, um, and we we did not have um, any buyers, good buyers that we normally do with 
that were interested in that area. But what we did is we put a, uh-huh. a bandit sign in the neighborhood. And uh, okay. we got tons of calls. And we found a guy who lived in the neighborhood, and he just wanted to buy the house for himself. And um, so we asked him for uh, proof of funds. I mean, we asked him, you know, hey, send us some proof that you have this money and can close on this house. You know what he did? He said, well, what's, what's that? He said, what's proof of funds? And he said, well, it's some, you know, I told, tried to explain what it was, bank statement or some kind of letter from your creditor or whatever. He said, well, you just want to make sure that you have the cash. Well, he, he took a picture of $6,000 in cash and spread it. He went to the <laughs> bank and got $6,000 in cash and spread it all over the table. And sent us a picture. How creative! <laughs> but uh, anyway, That's yeah, we sold that house for we sold that house for six grand and made three thousand dollar profit on it. But, nice, uh, nice man. So anyway, I I I was thinking about that <laughs> while you were going while you're talking, but um, you were how now, funny was that? <laughs> right. All right. So there's cash buyers everywhere, man. <laughs> well, there are, and and bandit signs are sometimes the best way to get those buyers. So don't if you're if you're thinking about wholesaling and you're worried that you don't have a big buyers list yet, don't let that stop you because um there's still opportunities where you could excuse me, once if you got a good deal and the numbers are good, it's not going to be hard at all to find a buyer for that property. You can stick some signs Absolutely. in the neighborhood. And many times you'll get cash buyers that um are are want to live in the house. They're not investors. Yep, yep. Actually, if you really want a, a good bandit sign message that works for me, number one, handwrite your message on an 18 by 24 yellow corrugated plastic sign. You know, you can get them at dirtcheapsigns.com for like a buck. But handwrite your message. Handwrite something like Handyman Special or yep. Investor Special. Uh, preferably Handyman Special. Marcel, cheap. You know, and then put your put call now, put your telephone number there. You know, handyman special, three bedroom, two bath, must sell, cheap, and then put your put your uh, telephone number there. You'll get a ton of phone calls. Believe it. Yeah, you will. But talking about bandit signs, what do you put on your bandit signs when you're looking for sellers? Uh, believe it or not, it's a, it's a simple message, handwritten font. Um, we used to actually handwrite them, but now DirtCheapSigns.com they'll actually print a handwritten font for you. Um, and I'm not a representative of them or anything like that, but um, I just like to, I just wanted to provide a good resource. But um, for the most part, um, all I put is cash with a dollar sign going down to yes. Uh, and then I put the number four, so a literal number four, and then houses underneath it. And then put my telephone number. Good. So that's it, cash, the number four, houses, call now, and then your telephone number. And that's it. Uh, one thing that you want to keep in mind is uh, to separate your bandit sign phone number from your actual business line. So I, I'll, I'll do something like create a Google Voice telephone number or go down to the 99 cent store and buy a, uh, a, a, a prepaid track phone for 10 bucks. You know, for me, I like the track phone. Um, uh, it, it just works better for me. Um, but for the most part, you just want to get an untraceable telephone number. They call bandit signs for a reason, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can also, um, um, I use a service sometimes called uh, Vumber, V as in virtual, 
U-M-B-E-R, Vumber.com, to get virtual numbers. Because Google Voice only lets you have one, but Vumber lets you have as many as you want. And it's really inexpensive. Wow. You learn something new every day. I just uh, learned about that. Look at that. So um, now let's talk direct mail. Um, you do do some direct mail. Uh, what do you like? Yes. Yellow letters, postcards, typed up letters. What's your what tickles your fancy? I prefer yellow letters over anything else. Okay. You know, I've tested everything. I feel the yellow letter response is phenomenal. I usually get a 15, 20 to 30 percent response rate. I could easily send out 100 letters today and get and get 20 phone calls. So I prefer yellow letters over everything. Good. Good. Um. And I've I heard believe some we people... just shared that yellow letter message just a little while ago. Right. I heard some people, though, complain, and I prefer yellow letters as well, but sometimes I'll mix them up with postcards and stuff. But I've heard people complain that, well, yellow letters may get you more calls, but they're not as pre-qualified. They're not as good of calls as somebody who would take the time to read a postcard. Have you ever found that to be true? Um, that. That can be true, but honestly, you know, I don't send out enough po- postcards to know. Um, I can tell you this, though. The type of seller that's going to come from a yellow letter and the type of seller that's going to come from, let's say, something like a bandit sign is going to be completely different. Um, so you're putting your message out there for um, for uh, the sellers on your bandit sign, and they're contacting you because they want to. You're uh, on a yellow letter you know, you're you're sending out these yellow letters and offering people cash for their houses, they're going to want to know what your offer is really. You know, sir, they're going to be more curious than anything. But you're not looking for those people. You're looking for the people that truly just want to sell their house. So it's going to be more digging um, than it will be for bandit signs, so to speak. So your bandit sign buyer for me is going to, your bandit sign seller for me is going to be more motivated than a yellow letter uh, seller, if that makes any sense. Okay. But you have to do both in order to generate a lot of calls. Again, it's like digging for gold, guys. That's all it really is. Yes. You know, I was looking at our notes from our previous call, and you had a really good tip about finding fire-damaged properties. Could you share that again um, and how you find your uh, fire-damaged properties? Yeah, it's really simple. There's two two ways, really. Um, most areas now, they're they're building websites for the fire company. Uh, to tell you um, what address the fire company received the call on, um, if it had a fire, if it was a false alarm. You know, all you have to do is go to Google and then type in the fire department in your uh, area, in your county, and uh, see if they have a website in your area. If not, uh, another thing you can do is just contact the local fire departments and uh, ask them, look, you know, I'm looking for you know, I'm doing some research in the area and wanted to know if uh, you can provide a list of properties that recently had fires. And then all you want to do is simply contact the owner. Most of these owners are in a shape where they actually want to sell. You got to remember the insurance is paying for the property, so they're not actually losing, but at the same time, they can't live in a property right now, so um, they just want to get rid of it. So that's actually a really good type of lead. In fact, I just bought a four-unit property with a store that had a fire in two of the units, mm. and um, I, I bought it for twenty five hundred bucks. Sold it for ten grand in like two hours. You know, so that was a, a a nice prop. That was a nice little profit for doing nothing. And then I just picked up a, from that same owner. I picked up a short sale just now. 
Um, in fact, I got to submit the paperwork uh, tomorrow morning. So, <laughs> nice. pretty funny, huh? Nice. Okay. Um, looking through my notes here, we covered... I know there was a lot of stuff we talked about on that last call. <laughs> I know. We're still doing really good on time right now. Actually, um, I mean, we're close to where we were before. Yeah, we are. Um, I think. Oh yeah, I remember Jamel. What it was? Um, you graciously offered to answer any questions that people had, and um, yeah, so, yeah. So <laughs> that's what it was. So listen, um, if, if if we've been talking about a lot of different things, and Jamel has a ton of experience, um, and we didn't even really we just briefly mentioned it at the beginning, but uh, Jamel is a, a wholesaling machine. He makes very very good income. Um, you know, just we. We're not going to share the the exact numbers that Jamel makes just because it's private and it's his business. But uh, he does very well. Let me just tell you that. And uh, he has a ton of experience wholesaling properties. And Jamel offered last time we re we recorded this that if anybody has any questions, go to the website and put them in the comments section, in the show notes. Go to realestateinvestingmastery.com. Put in. Uh, go to this episode, put in the, some questions that you have, and what we're going to do is we're going to get Jamel back on to answer all those questions. So I think that's really cool. And that sounds perfect. Really gracious, and we appreciate hey, that. But Jamel, where can they go to get more information about you? Well, if they wanted more information, um, they can either they can go to uh, realestatereporiches.com, and there there's a... Uh, uh, four-part video series that they can take advantage of if they want to, uh, or they can visit my blog. There's a ton of information on the blog, real students doing real deals uh, as well. Uh, and you can go to jamelgibbs.com to uh, check that out. Yeah, and I'll have those websites. If you want more information on me. I'll have those websites on the um, show notes, jamelgibbs.com and realestatereporiches.com. Um, and then again, guys, if you have questions and you want Jamil, Jamil to answer them, he's going to come back. And uh, so go to the website, put some questions in the comments. I'm sure we missed something. Um, oh, I only we missed got, a lot of stuff, man. I know. I'm sure we did. <laughs> I only got I only got about two or three hours of sleep last night, so I'm like dead tired. Um, so I apologize if I. Uh, I apologize if I asked any questions that you already answered. <laughs> that you no, already talked right, about. Man. But anyway, um, thank you so much, Jamel. I sure appreciate it, you coming back here again. We're going to do another episode soon with with all of these uh, questions that we're going to get answered. And uh, don't forget, everybody, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to download your um, free fast cash survival kit. We have some video tutorials on there that are absolutely free and uh, show you how we wholesale homes. And uh, we do a lot of the same things Jamel does, except Jamel bids more on uh, MLS properties than Alex or I do. So I, I've really appreciated that, getting that feedback and some um, uh, interest in that. The um, Okay, cool. Well, thank you, Jamel. We're going to talk again soon. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm sure we missed a lot of stuff from the last call we did. But, again, if you guys have any questions or if there's anything that you want us to cover on the next call, just let us know. I'll be more than happy to answer your questions. I appreciate you having us, Joe. Okay. Talk to you later, Jamil.
ไปไหมไป